Welcome to the Pop Cult Podcast. Here are your hosts Ariana and Seth. Welcome to the Pop Cult Podcast. This is Seth Harris. Ariana Ramos. And we have got, might be a bit of a longer show today. Uh, later in the show, we are going to share our Oscar picks, and I think you'll enjoy that segment. It's a lighthearted segment in which we don't really give a shit because a lot of the movies we liked didn't get any nominations, so it'll be fun. Maybe if you picked things I liked, I would care. Yeah. Uh, so first, though, we are going to talk about some books we've been reading. It's always fun every few months to kind of talk about the things we've read that really stand out a lot. Uh, and there's one book that we both ended up reading that we'll talk about at the end. Uh, but to start, Ariana, what is something you've read here in the last few months that you recommend and want to talk about? Um, I read a lot of books, but I think the one I want to mention is My Annihilation. Um, I don't want to mess up that author. Fuminori name. Nakamura. Yes, and it was a crime fiction kind of body horror-ish, like psycho thriller thing it it was a pretty like low-key book but you also do not know what the fuck is going on until the middle of it well so get into like what's the the general plot what's going on so what you're following is a man who apparently has decided that they're going to change their identity and they've taken someone else's identity and they're in a room and while they're reading the story they're a story that was left to them of the identity that they were, they've occupied, they start to realize that that it's already them. They are like, why does this person have the same story as I do? Um, later on, you realize that um, what has happened is that there has been a killing of sorts. I don't want to give this away because it's very, and it's psychological. Mm-hmm. And you realize there are two men who have set up a hospital to convince these other two men to hurt themselves. Okay. That's, <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like it's a deeply like, psycho, would you consider it like horror? Like psychological horror? Yeah, psychological okay. horror. And um, you are reading from two different perspectives at one point, and then it slips to like one perspective in solid. Um, it is deeply sad at times. It is based in Japan. You start getting information about um, killings that have happened in Japan and people trying to understand what led that person to kill or their feelings about like gaining like the first time they ever had like an erection so um it is like as a woman as someone who like it's just like really weird to read because like they put it in such details that you're kind of like oh man it must be horrible to be a boy Like, like not knowing how to release it that because they're just like I don't know if like they're like the way that they're explaining it like being a child that age and they're like they don't know if it's like they're seeking affection or if they're seeking violence or like what is the what are the themes that lie together when it comes to your own arousal so is it like about sort of psychosexual at times uh, like yeah. strife inside of a man's mind yeah and like uh I thought it was uh, like very well written. It's translated by um, Sam Bett. So I'm sure like this person had to have like a deep understanding of what the author wanted to give up in order to translate it into English. Because I know often with like translation instances, if it's a debut author, it's not the case. But like I know we talk about uh, Haruki Murakami in our Oscar segment. Um, he has, I think it's the same translator on every book yeah. at this point. And so it's that, that's one thing I've always wondered about is, is there something I don't get when I read the English version that if I could read the original version, I would, or is the translation that good? And like, I almost always wonder like, how long does it take to translate a book compared to write a book? Yeah. And I would almost feel like it probably takes about the same time because you're rewriting it in a language and you, but you need it to have the same things communicated like you need to have the same kind of feeling the emotions and everything and so i thought it was a very good book 
Um, a lot of the readings that I've been doing, and I probably need to blame you of sorts, there's just a lot of dark books that I read. I mean, that's what, you asked me to put books on your Kindle, and those are the type of books I usually read. Uh, And this is something that I'll let the audience know. A lot of times with my book reading, it's almost like Russian roulette, because I just won't read what the description is. I will just go into it, because Seth is like, oh, you, if I give a description of what I want, he'll just give... Yeah, if you tell me a book you want, I'll find it for you. Yeah. But usually what she'll do is she'll hand me her Kindle and be like, put more books on this. So <laughs> I just so I just like whatever I've been interested in and have noticed, I just put it all on there. So what's happened is she's actually read more of the books that I'm interested in reading than I've been able to read. <laughs> and it makes me sad because I'm like, I'm probably gonna die and she'll actually know what happened in those books and I won't. But you also read a ton. It's but then I feel like I have to read books that you haven't in order for the our our household to cover more territory. It, that, that doesn't make sense. You just read the books you want. I know, read. I'm crazy. I'm not going I'm in there yeah, going yeah. like, what book has he not read? Let well, me go there's read. a book that I just read recently that I want to talk to you about. Okay. Uh, a book written in 1953. Yeah. Savage Night by Jim Thompson. This book is insane. So, Jim Thompson. Sorry, Tom- it's just hearing you say it's insane. It and I just described my book. You're oh, this, like- your book, Psycholog. This is crazy in similar different ways. Yeah. Um, so, Jim Thompson, if you're unfamiliar out there, is a he was a crime author. He's most famous for writing uh, the book The Killer Inside Me. And then there's one called Population 1280. And his stuff is usually set in the Southwest. Uh, this one is not, though the main character comes from Arizona. The character is who's narrating this is named Charles Bigger. Uh, that's not the name he's going by. He is basically a hitman who's famous and has been hired by someone that's only ever referred to as the man to come to this town outside of New York City. Mm-hmm. Because there's a dude there who is about to testify in a case that could send the man to prison. So they need this witness eliminated. Okay. And our narrator, Charles, Carl, uh, shows up in town posing as someone who's going to go to the university there. And he needs a boarding house. And he knows he's where he's going because the witness runs a boarding house. Uh, and so he immediately starts seducing the guy's wife. Okay. Um, there's only one other boarder at the house who runs a bakery in town. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, Kendall, who is the most like busybody up in this main character's ass the whole time. <laughs> and who, at one point he starts to think that Kendall is working for the man and he's talking to him in secret code. Like, it's so good. Uh, so yeah, he starts like basically sleeping with uh the witness's wife in order and like kind of like lets her in on the plan a little bit uh but then the part where things you're you're like what's going on and i don't really think this is a spoiler uh there's ruth who is the like cook housekeeper who does not live there she comes in every day and i think she has like classes at the university too Mm -hmm. so she comes the first time he sees her she's on crutches Mm -hmm. and he's like what is that about Okay. And so then he approaches her and like basically like gropes her while she's in the 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 kitchen. Oh no. And she's into it. <laughs> uh but the thing he finds out <laughs> is the reason she's on crutches is because one of her legs doesn't work. And the way he describes it when he sees it for the first time is it looks like a little baby leg where a adult leg should be. <laughs> But that's not even the weirdest part. The weirdest part is Mr. Charles Bigger. I'm face palming just yeah. in case you want to Mr. Charles Bigger, when he's in his room alone for the first time in the book, proceeds to take his contact lenses off, step out of his shoes that have lifts in them because he's only five feet tall, and remove his dentures. I believe he has like uh, tuberculosis or something. It's like, yeah, he's sick, but he's hiding it. Uh, and so it's this... Like, there's a lot of pulp crime books out there that are, you know, will follow seedy characters. This is one where I'm like, what the fuck is going on? This Like, it's so weird and so dark. And the way the story ends, you're not sure. It's very much an instance of, like, an unreliable narrator. You're not sure if our character has gone crazy or if these things are really happening. Mm. And it's a short read. It's like a two and a half hours you can knock this book out. Okay. And so it's if you're somebody who likes sort of pulpy crime fiction, 
then I feel like Savage Night is just going to be like, you're going to love it. You're going to eat this shit up. It's so good. Uh, so we both had kind of weird ones to start okay. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is your uh, next book that you wanted to kind of recommend um, and talk about? How High We Got in the Dark. Um, it's another name I'm not really sure how I'm Sequoia to... Nagamatsu. So it is a collection of sh- short stories that are all connected to one another. And the short stories are, um, the first one is a father going to see where his daughter had died and she, like, was working in Siberia, had discovered, like, a new, uh, like, one of the people that were probably, like, one of the species that led to human evolution, um, and how during that, like, he realizes that, um, as they're unearthing these things a virus is let loose and Mm. a pandemic starts to go through the world and he realizes i'm going to die where my daughter died and it is the reaction of different people going through this pandemic that goes through years and they basically what happens is hotels are converted into funeral homes where people can have multiple funerals at the same time and then also have like little locations where they can uh, basically have a moment, almost like to have a a tomb without not having a tomb because they, they end up burning the bodies because it's necessary because they're sick. Then there's also people who do get sick during it and are living the last bits of their lives, but also having people study them in the meantime and also studying their bodies when they die. Um how it's affected different people in different ways about how maybe if a family member died from an other like natural uh, like from age it's very confusing during this time because again they don't have normal funeral situations there's a there's like an adventure park that they have for dying kids and the last ride is their last ride. They die at the end of the Yes, wow. and it was made by, like, this um, multi-billionaire that his own daughter had died. And he wanted to do, like, a theme park for, like, so you can euthanize your child. So they're happy in their last moments. They're la- mm. happy in their last moments. And it's based, and it is um, described by one of the people that, base- uh, that dresses up as a character and lives in the park. Mm. Um, so it is the ending was not like my favorite thing in the whole world but the reading this during a pandemic kind of fucked me up in a weird way because within it like one one person was like well maybe the pandemic is going through because the world is like we're overpopulated and they're trying to kill everybody to make sure there's enough food because of you know they're not neglecting that there is a climate change in this Mm -hmm. book um most of the cast or most of the main characters are Asian. Um, is it set in... It's set where? in different parts in the world. Okay. So sometimes, so sometimes it's in Japan. jumps around the world. Yeah, sometimes gotcha. it's in Siberia. Sometimes it's um, uh, like in other places. Uh, I thought it was very clever. It was very clever on how you start to notice afterwards the connections. It's not as if like you have like so-and-so knows so-and-so from this like thing. There's like... A necklace that someone has. Like, even if you don't pick up on the connections, you'll still enjoy the book. Yes. But if you're paying attention, you'll start to yeah, notice. Yeah, you start noticing connections, or someone is like, my brother's from so-and-so, and you're like, oh, so-and-so had a brother called this. Um, and it's very inventive. At some point, somebody has a black hole in their forehead. So, so very, like, magic realist. Yes, magic okay. realist. And so I really enjoyed it at that point. The ending wasn't my favorite, but I still think it was an amazing book to read on how they basically made there's also like a ship that goes to find another earth um on how their reaction is because they're like waking up at times to see if that earth is good and then going back to sleep and how they realize like it's been over like like hundreds of years that since they've been in contact with earth so meaning all these letters and videos that they've had from cousins families they're all dead they're all dead and um how they are kind of like once they find the perfect earth they're like we wonder if the signal will reach out to them we like this place is beautiful and perfect but they also had heard news that the planet was doing better and they did all these things to try to fix it and they're like 
so do they even like, need this yeah. yeah so there's almost like this small sense of guilt that they they went all this way or like they sacrificed basically all their connections for yeah. what maybe something that doesn't even pay off and but like they do end up finding one but it's also they're like mournful that they're like well we'll never see our family or ever no. know what earth no. is so it's a very good book a uh, very heavy read it can be a heavy I like read at times, stuff, yeah. so I, I I enjoyed it. Uh, what's funny is my book is about the pandemic, too. Oh, my boy. It's Yay. <laughs> Our Country Friends by Gary Steingart, and it's the first book I've read by him. He's a, a Russian-American writer. Oh, it, no, we can't talk about uh, him. Yeah. <laughs> you just bleep out his name. <laughs> uh, so he, I've heard his name mentioned on the Chapo Trap House podcast before, and I had heard his name before in... Uh, the the old salon.com reader's guide to contemporary authors which this is the kind of child i was uh i was well child i was a young adult i was like 17 i bought this when it was originally published i believe and it's i still have it they've never updated it and i love this book because it's just like (laughs) here's a contemporary author here's what we think of their books here's what you should read and i believe there was like a two-page spread that was like up-and-coming writers and this was like 1998 i think when the book came out and he's in that section. So, I mean, 20 plus years have passed and now he's an established writer. And he's mostly known to write humorous things. And this is one of those. Uh, Our Country Friends is about um, Sasha, who is a Russian-American writer, uh, who has a home in upstate New York and the pandemic breaks out in 2020. So he invites a bunch of his friends to come stay at the house. Uh, it was like he's kind of dis- made it into kind of a writer's retreaty place where there's these little cabins outside the main house, and that's where everyone else is going to stay. They each have their own cabin, and then he has his wife, and they have a daughter that they've adopted from Korea, who's very into K-pop, not because she's Korean, but because she's a child of that age in America, right? Yeah. And it also, I think, you come to learn that it does kind of connect her a little bit to her roots, which she's curious about. Uh, among the friends that come, mo- almost all of them are second-generation immigrants. So you have, um, he has a Korean friend from college who has developed a dating app. And the way the app works is you pointed it to people and it uses algorithms to determine how in love those two people are with each other. Oh no. (laughs) And so there's like a a scene at dinner where they're like, oh, get out the app. It'll be fun. (laughs) And you can only imagine it's not going to be fun. Um, Then he has an Indian friend who is in love with the Korean uh, app designer unrequited love from their college days yeah that like all of that gets resolved here at this getaway there's another friend who's kind of a a sort of a world traveler and then the person that they throw into the mix that's kind of who creates all the problems is an a-list actor only ever referred to as the actor they never name who he is but he's set to star in a miniseries based on one of sasha's books playing a character based on sasha and so when he arrives, that's when... Was he invited? or was Yeah, he because the, the, Sasha was like, oh, this will be good for us to kind of sit down and talk about okay. the book, right? And the actor starts relationships with people that are there. Oh, I forgot. Then there's... Uh, Sasha has a graduate student who's like a, a young white woman from the South mm-hmm. who's wants to be an up-and-coming author. And so immediately this young blonde woman, that's who the actor goes to first not the only person he ends up with in the book and things get much more complicated um the uh, app designer woman she strikes up kind of a motherly relationship with the adopted daughter Mm -hmm. which causes problems with sasha's wife who is also completely paranoid about the pandemic and everybody is wearing masks and social distancing constantly um and it's it was one of the few books that i've read in last years that there was a moment where i actually laughed out loud Oh. And that with a book, that's hard, I feel like, to happen. Normally in your head, you'll go like, oh, that's funny. That's amusing. But like this... <laughs> isn't that like a lot about how it feels when you watch comedy? That was funny. Oh, well, yeah. It's no like... chuckle. When they talk about like, comedians who've just been exposed to so much comedy, they don't laugh anymore, but they'll go like, oh, that's funny. But it's like understanding <laughs> like the construction of it is like, oh, that's really smart. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't have like the best reviews. People who really love Gary Steingart expressed a lot of disappointment about this book. This is the first time I've ever read anything by him, so I was kind of, like, setting the bar for me. Um, it definitely gets kind of messy near the end, and I was kind of ready for it to be over when we got to, the like, the last part of the book. I was like, okay, yeah, I feel like the steam's kind of run out. We're done yeah. now. 
but it's it's such a great setup and it there's it constantly touches on like stuff that was happening at that part of the pandemic with you know black lives matter gets brought up at one point there's like racial stuff because some of the characters like to go for walks and they're out in the middle of upstate new york and there's some hostility from some of the white rural people that live there and it's just it's a book that has like a very strong sense of voice yeah like you can hear the author but he's not like talking over the characters but he's able to like represent their mood and who they are very well yeah. uh but yeah it's if you're looking for something that's like kind of light consumption not heavy at all in really way but like still is connected to our world and like things that are going on that we need to talk about and we need to engage with i'd say it's like a pretty enjoyable book in that regard all right right when we come back after this short break we will talk about a book we both read uh good neighbors by sarah langan We are back, and we are now going to talk about uh, a book that we both read, Good Neighbors by Sarah Langan. So I'll just kind of introduce that book to all of you out there. Uh, I had thought for the longest time that Sarah Langan was related to horror author John Langan, and I'm totally wrong about that. Uh, but so this is my first time really reading her work, and I would say this is a, a horror novel. It's yeah. a social horror novel. Um the premise of the book is uh, everything takes place on Maple Street, which is a suburb on Long Island. Every, uh, like, kind of, there's different sections of the book, and they start with a map of the neighborhood to show you who's living there and who's left the neighborhood. Yes. Um, and an event happens in the opening of the book that shakes up everyone's life. Uh, there's this massive sinkhole opens up in the park uh, that all the homes face. And it becomes a big problem, as anything would. And they are waiting for the city or the state to come in and, like, deal with this. Uh, it focuses on the Wild family, who are transplants over the last few months to Long Island from the city. Uh, Arlo Wild is the father. He's a has-been rock star who did had some issues with drugs. He's off that now. Um, he's just... And he's trying to be a good dad. And he's not really a bad guy. He just... He's rough around the edges. Um, yeah. His wife uh, is Gertie, who did pageants growing up as a child and a teenager. Feels very ostracized and uh, self-conscious in the neighborhood because she sees herself the way she dresses, her personality, as not really meshing with the Long Island suburbs very well. Yeah. But she's very desperate to like find a friend. Uh, they have a daughter, Julie, who's a preteen, curses like a sailor. <laughs> uh, there's her kid brother, Larry, who is on the autism spectrum. Or they believe so. They never officially yeah. diagnose him. I mean, but his behaviors to me is like a teacher. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, the kid's on the spectrum. Uh, and then the only person that Gertie really makes a connection with before the opening of the book is their next door neighbor, Rhea Schroeder, who is a community college professor who seemed to just be welcoming Gertie in. And we learn very quickly on in the book that all of a sudden Gertie, or sorry, Rhea just turned a cold shoulder to Gertie. Yes. And we eventually learn why, but that's something that I think you need to read the book to find out. And this uh, sinkhole creates tensions between the two of them that lead to just, I mean, all-out war. And <laughs> I mean, it's like physical yeah. combat in the neighborhood. Uh, so, Ariana, we both read this book. What did you think of Good Neighbors? I thought it was one of those books that... Um was very good at keeping you at your toes and it does switch between either being like a documentary on the way that they're they're presenting it to a news outlet to invest uh, like investigative journalism to the back to the narration yeah there's a framing device where it keeps jumping to the future and will be like an excerpt from a book or an interview with people that were there 
and they're looking back on it in retrospect of what yes. happened on uh, Maple Street. So it does leave you a little bit on the edge, especially because then you discovered through that information that someone, uh, a number of deaths ha- had happened. And, and the, you don't the... know who exactly is going to die. And then you discover who, and then it's also like information about um, the people who live there. Yeah, and I feel like it's... It's a wonderful use of foreshadowing. It's very clever in that she will hint at events, but you never get specifics. So you know, okay, people are going to die. Things are going to get worse than they are, but you never know who and you never know how until it actually happens in the narrative. Yes. And so I thought it was very interesting because it also starts to pull up what your ideas of what's going on, especially between those almost like intermissions of information, like... um, they you are pretty much convinced while you're reading it that like arlo who's the dad mm-hmm. um very dedicated to his kids would never harm anybody but then they're where they're constantly reminding you like he did drugs nobody should trust him and then interviews with the neighbors that are supposed to be in the future saying that they've never trusted him etc um only to discover that most of it has been falsified um it is there's a yeah there's a lot about like how much of your past do you reveal how much of your past is too dangerous to reveal like how vulnerable should you be with people yes and then arlo as much as with gertie both have very complicated um past arlo apparently had a very neglectful father who was his manager during the time who kind of encouraged him to do drugs and i mean all i would say our three main characters arlo ria and gertie all have horrible things from their past yes that play a role in why things get so bad yes and so um the characters that you feel almost like the most saddened for are for the kids because they have no control as to what is happening but they are also following like they're emulating they're emulating and there are also like these unwritten rules that like julia doesn't understand because she never grew up in this atmosphere versus uh rita's daughter i think was it sally's her name i can't remember but yeah she has a daughter that's about uh julie's age um that like she gets very frustrated with because it's sort of like these unknowns that are not shelly yeah shelly um are sort of like not shared with each other and she's kind of having to navigate them not knowing like what who pisses what off like what and it's also like you start to remember as a kid how powerless you were and what you did to sort of manipulate to have peace amongst yourselves. I don't know if you ever went through this because you like you were homeschooled, so um, you never had a friend. Just kidding. But like I remember, like I would use like what is friend? <laughs> I remember as a kid, I would use sleepovers as a way for my mom not to yell at me. So if I did bad at a grade. But I already invited my friend over that. She wouldn't Friday. yell at you in front of the friend. I guess she couldn't do anything. <laughs> and this kind of emulates that in some ways because, like, the parents don't know what is going on and why one kid wants to live where they like with the other family. Um, I would say uh, the book is very much about herd mentality. Yes. Because most of the neighborhood turns on the wilds at a certain point. Yes. I don't think that's a spoiler. It's you kind of know. From the beginning, that things are going to get bad for them. Yes. Uh, and it, and I feel like it's for America right now, and the way mob rule appears to be the like way things function. When you look at uh, school board meetings, you look at January sixth at the Capitol, like the idea that you have these sort of angry mobs that are embarrassed about something, but and it's that embarrassment and shame that's turned them into just unthinking violence machines in some way uh i feel like the book does a great job of capturing that so that you as a reader i would felt just such deep frustration when people would just turn on one of the wilds so easily and that they would just go to such extremes so quickly where yeah, it went yeah. from, it was like zero to a hundred. And you're like, whoa, why are we doing that? That's like fucked up. Yeah. And then there's also, um, there's a veteran that lives within the area. Mm-hmm. And he's the one that stands out because this is an older guy who's living with his parents. 
And he's wheelchair and bound. And he's wheelchair bound, and he's always watching what's going around. He has PTSD, and he kind of like has these mirrors that he uses in order to deal with the pain in his legs. Because uh, does he also have like that sort of disassociation kind of thing? Yes. And, yeah. And so, um, his family's his fam like family lives like leaves midway because. Again, like at the beginning of every chapter, you're starting to see how less and le- like more and more people are leaving. Well, because it's mainly the sinkhole because it's bitumen, I think. It's some sort of mineral that's coming up out of the hole. And it's they talk about how it turns the yards and just like a tarry swamp. Yes. So it's just the neighborhood is almost taking on the rotten insides of these people as it's being revealed. Yes. So it's just the neighborhood's becoming this festering, like oily swamp. Yeah, and then there's also a remark about um, it is a like a class like class system where the wilds are the ones that are looked down on. But then you sort of had like an Indian Asian family that are just trying to like go through it, like mimic what everyone else is doing. They've assimilate, yeah, assimilate as best as they can, and so they're kind of like we can't break, like we can't break away from the way that Rita thinks things because Rita, like, yeah. Rita is Rita. Rhea. Rhea. Rhea? Yeah, you keep saying Rita. No, Rita. There's not, there's no Rita, Rhea. In the book. Um, because Rhea just is sort of like is the alpha. Yeah, and she is such a complex and disturbing character. Oh yes. Because we do get a lot of insight into her background, and there's some stuff where I was like, I feel like maybe I've briefly encountered people like her, but never seen them like at their full potential. Yeah, and like Rhea, you feel sympathy towards her at some point. You feel really yeah. sad, and then it gets to the point that when you're hearing her narration through it, you're kind of like, you could have avoided this. Like you could have stopped at any point and like asked for help, but she's so like self-involved. Well, where- even when the the crisis appears to be resolved. We won't go into spoilers. It's like she still can't get past it. And it just, like, is this horrible sinking but it's, feeling. It sh- I feel like she's almost a remark about how in mostly, like, white American culture, like, she keeps watching the same sci-fi film over and over again when she's alone. Oh, yeah, Disney's The Black Hole, she keeps talking about, because it was a film, like, she saw with her dad. dad. Her dad, who's an alcoholic, that she was in denial about him being an alcoholic. Yeah. And how she now is an alcoholic. Yeah. And how she blacks out, but won't admit to it, and doesn't say, say anything, and there's, when like... It's, yeah, her family life... Because we very quickly get glimpses into each of these households. And, like, the wilds are chaotic and messy, but there's certainly a sense of cohesion. With the Schroders, there's just... Everybody is isolated in their own little space. Yeah, the wilds are a family. They are, like... They, they are a fam- They care about each other. Yeah. They're... They can get annoyed at one another, but then they go, they think to themselves, I need to go take care of so-and-so. Or, like, the mom feels bad because she's like, oh, poor Julia, who's always taking care of her brother. And Julia has moments where she's like, I don't want to fucking take care of my brother. But then she kind of, like, snaps out of it and well, like... You compare, like, uh, Gertie's relationship with Julia to Rhea's relationship with Shelly. Yes. And Shelly and Rhea's relationship is very complicated. There's a whole thing near the beginning about brushing her hair. That she's like, please don't brush my hair. Because she and- brushes her hair so hard at, like... It pulls on her skin. Yeah. Like, her hair has to be perfect yeah. the entire time. So the moments that any time that her hair is messy, it becomes a problem. But there is also a relation as to what happens when her hair is brushed. That if we were really like, yeah. that spoil the whole thing. Um, but the... Uh, it's, it's definitely... A, a, I think one of the big themes of the book is shame. And what shame can do to people. What it can drive them to do. Because Rhea's motivation, which I won't say here, but her motivation in the book is based out of shame. She tells Gertie something. Gertie doesn't say she's going to like tell anyone or threaten her in any way, but it's Rhea's personal shame over telling her this that causes her to just go down this dark path because she anticipates that Gertie might turn on her and then use this, well, even though Gertie never does. And it's also... it's um, She makes an assumption without having really done it it's like she assumes that Gertie is going to betray her. She assumes that Gertie no longer wants to be her friend and that Gertie's going to tell everybody and that Rhea's sort of like, this isn't fair. All the kids like her because the kids just like flocked to her house at times. Well, speaking of the kids, I really enjoyed some of the child characters and the way we get hints of their perspective. There's one boy who's 14 years old. Yeah. I forget his name, but like 
he's the one child that is so like steadfast in what is happening here is wrong and even his own family like gaslights him isn't like his is he the one that like his family literally put a sharpie down well his parents got divorced (laughs) but they can't they're not divorced they're separated yeah but they live in the same home so they have a sharpie that they'll come in and do touch-ups every once in a while (laughs) and like there's a literal line down the middle of the house yes and so and they're only unified once they decide that like they're against the wild yeah once they decide they're going to join up with Rhea and terrorize the wild family they erase the sharpie (laughs) line so it's yeah it's a it's an interesting story about how people conform uh how fear is this powerful motivator for evil Yes. That when you have large groups of people motivated by fear, bad things happen. Mm-hmm. And vulnerable people get targeted. And I mean, in many ways, it's basically a one big metaphor for like the rise of fascism in a country. But we're seeing it in one neighborhood, how yeah. fascism can take hold. Uh, it was weird because on Goodreads, they'll tell you, you know, hey, you're reading this book, you might like this. Like, I was reading this book and they were like, oh, you might like um, G- a Big Little Lies. And I was like, I don't think I would, There's actually. There's death in that. <laughs> I mean, I know it's like, I've watched, I mean, I like the Big Little Lies show on HBO Max, uh, but I was like, I don't think that's the kind of book I would enjoy spending my time with. Are you with. just not into women? Uh, no. Well, uh, <laughs> there's a certain type of, like, literature written by women or for women that maybe I'm missing out. Like, I'm not going to be so arrogant as to say, like, I know it's bad. I just, it doesn't. There's not an attraction to me. I still love female authors, but there's a certain... It's almost like judging a book by its cover. It really is. I think it also has to do with the fact that, like, uh, that uh, that book and this one are centered around a suburb. It's like and, uh, domestic horror. Yes. Yeah. And that might be, like, the horrors that can happen because we're all trying to, like, keep up with certain looks. And we never really had to go deep into that because we didn't have children and we weren't representing anything. Well, I mean... From the age of 10 to 18, I lived in the woods where my yeah. father built our house. And then before that, like, we moved a couple times. So I never really had, like, long-term. And they weren't, like, nice suburbs. They were, like, yeah. lower-middle-class suburbs that you we were, lived like, in. You were, like, more in the church groups. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but uh, would you recommend Good Neighbors as, a like, a book for general audiences? Yeah. Yeah, I would. Yeah. I think that, that may be where the Big Little Lies comparison is coming from. It is a book that's very consumable even if you're someone who might not normally pick up books. And even, like, the dark parts of it aren't as extreme as, you know, in other books that I've read that have, like, violence yeah. and things. Uh, it's got a... I feel like it's written in a way that you get pulled in right away. Like, you're in it. Yeah. Because it yeah. starts with, like, these artifacts from the future talking about the events on the street. Yeah, and it's And you're all of like, a sudden like, ooh, I want to find out what happened. Yeah, it's kind of like e-entertainment or um, whatever those YouTube stuff that, like you'll end up watching like 10 of those of being like what happened with the cast of harry potter and uh this dude right over here that was only in two movies and you're like okay i'm just gonna watch this but enough of the details are left out that then you're like you really want to dig into the core narrative of the book yeah and you do end up like wanting certain characters to die (laughs) <laughs> there's some characters i was like i, was I want them to say, fucking like, die I, you're rooting but like i love that you went immediately well there's towards... some i'm rooting for and there's some i'm rooting for to get it okay. where i'm like you need to you need to go we need to have a series where we need to figure out which fictional characters you want it to just get it just <laughs> just <Yeah>. go <laughs> uh so that was good neighbors if you have any book recommendations you've heard the things that we've read and what we think of them if you have any book recommendations of something that you think maybe hasn't come across our radar and we should read uh let us know and if it's something we like we very well could read it and do a segment here on the podcast All right, so next weekend, if you are listening to this uh, hot off of the recording, uh, will be the Oscars, uh, an award ceremony I used to give a shit about, but now I don't really care anymore. Nothing matters. Yeah, it was when um, Crash won. That was, I feel like, the moment where I was like, fuck the Oscars, because that was a... You mean it's not, not when Green Book... One. Well, this was a de- like over a decade before Green Book. <laughs> uh, Crash was just an awful movie. But I think it's always fun to kind of look at the Oscar nominations and determine, you know, what we th- 
would like to win out of what's been nominated. One thing we noticed was there's a lot of movies we really like that didn't get a single nomination. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, like, like, Come On, Come On. Red t- Rocket. Titania, I think is how you pronounce it. Yeah, Red Rocket. Like, movies that are really good and should have gotten nominations. Nothing. No. So. And to think, like, Joaquin Phoenix, like, won Best Actor from Joker. Yeah, and, his and didn't film, get a nomination. Come on, come on, didn't get a nomination. <laughs> well, hey, we had to nominate Will Smith for King Richard, right? <laughs> so we are going to not look at every category, but we're going to look at some of the main ones and share what we think should win based on the nominees there and why we would like them to win. So we're going to start with uh, the Screenplay Awards. So we're going to start with uh, Best Adapted Screenplay. Mm-hmm. And you have you did both? Yes, I okay. did both. Because sometimes double- people just think screenplay. And oh, they no, don't I double-checked yeah. my notes just to be So, sure. Best Adapted Screenplay. The nominees are Coda, Drive My Car, Dune, The Lost Daughter, and The Power of the Dog. And the winner is... Dune. Uh, Drive My Car. I mean, I think it's also, for me, I, I read Dune after watching... The movie. The movie. Both movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you made me watch uh, the uh, David the, Lynch, Lynch and uh, I didn't make you watch the sci-fi miniseries though. That's... No, that would have been a little bit too much. Um, but I think should we be sharing our opinions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, with Dune, there's like little hints that they actually put into the film. Like this is not, this is not like ruining anything. Like having to do with the fact that the Duke's dad, like. Um, like, what do you call that? Like, was a bullfighter, and like there a door. Yes, I think it's and like there were signals of that. There were things that like that bled through that had to do with the book. That versus um, the first movie version, they didn't apply to. But this one was like visual cues that let me know like this director and screenwriter loved this book. Yeah, I think it's in terms of a very dense, difficult to adapt book. They pulled it off. Yes. I think my problem with Dune as a movie was it's not a complete story. So it's one of those where I'm going to wait until after the second part and view that as like a whole thing. Well, I didn't ask for your opinion about well, that. Well, I, <laughs> I don't care that you don't like my opinion. You're a white man with a uh, podcast. Well, mine was we my drive, my car, uh, just because it's based on a short story. And I was mm-hmm. so impressed with how much uh, short story by Haruki uh, Murakami, a mm. Japanese writer. Very, like an amazing yeah, writer. Um and I was just so impressed how they took the seed of that story and then built this much more complex film out of it. And so I was impressed with the adaptation in that way. I think we were both impressed with how the respective screenwriters adapted the work. They just did it in different ways. Where yeah. with mine, it's they added Have to you it. read the short story? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I haven't read the short story. So I may <coughs> if I had read the short story, I might have gone that route. Um, with Dune, I think since it's like still seeped in within my brain since like i read it like liz, liz a friend of ours here in the in the netherlands like lent me the, the physical copy of the book so i read it and i think maybe if i had read the short story i still love that movie yeah. so uh so best original screenplay the nominees are belfast don't look up king richard licorice pizza and the worst person in the world and the winner is... Should we say at the same time? No, because we might have different ones. Uh, worst person in the world. The worst person in the world. That's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> we should have said uh, it at the same time. Uh, I had originally kind of thought of Licorice Pizza, but then I thought, I don't... The screenplay is not what I liked about that movie. I think the screenplay is the weakest part of that yeah, movie. Yeah, it was just an aesthetic. Yeah, the aesthetic <laughs> is what I loved about it. But yeah, I feel like the worst person in the world, it told a story that you don't hear much of, which is... A young woman in her thirties, coming of age, or like twenties, kind of late twenties. No, 20s. she was like it was like early thirties, yep. late twenties. But they, I love the fact that they said that she, in the film, it's kind of like she's just going through life and she's forewarned before she commits to someone like I'm older than you, I want different things, but she still goes for it. And how one is very visually inventive. I feel yes. like Joaquin Trier is a director that I'm like, okay, this guy's pretty good after like the three movies of his we've seen. He's yes. very good. Um, one thing I thought of a way to describe worst person in the world, it's Amos, Amelie with less magic realism. Yeah. It's a more realistic Amelie because it's visually inventive but it's very grounded in what it act like. Amelie is such a manic pixie dream girl character, 
And this character is certainly not. She's no, a, she's... Yeah, she's the opposite of that in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's, I just thought it was such a well-structured story too. Because uh, it's, it's clearly, it's broken into like chapters on screen. Yeah. And like, and then the decisions he makes, like I, I always felt the, uh, the mushroom scene yeah. is the most accurate depiction I feel like I've ever seen of what happens when the drugs kick in. Because everybody's yeah. fine. All of a sudden they just stop in their tracks and it's that feeling, right? Yeah, but everything slows down. And I think it's it was also kind of nice to have a director that obviously either had a very good sense of women when he was directing yeah. it. It never... You don't feel like she's hypersexualized or that she's like... She isn't a saint, which is something that does happen in many, yeah. uh, like many pixie girls. It's sort of like, oh, she's so whimsical, um, but she isn't. Um, she's making these decisions almost sporadically, but it makes sense when you view the way that her life is going. All right, our next category up is best cinematography. So the nominees here are Dune, Nightmare Alley. The Power of the Dog, The Tragedy of Macbeth, and West Side Story. And the winner is... Uh, the Power of the Dog. Dune. See, I would have given it to Dune, but I kept thinking more about how the camera movement versus... And also, like, I like Dune, but there is some special effects in it. Um, and it, there are times for me that it was a little so too So you feel dark. like the special effects are kind of a cheat in some ways? Like Sometimes. It is the line between where the cinematography is and then what someone's doing on a computer is. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And with Power of the Dog, um, they really utilized the scene and like basically the space that they had, the colors, and there's also like the sense of being in certain atmosphere. Um, there's one moment that we're watching... Uh, Cumberbatch or yeah, Benedict Cumberbatch, Cumberbatch um, kind of like hanging out by himself and you kind of have this sense of that he feels like free to be himself at the moment not knowing that he's being watched and they do it very beautifully um, so that's why I liked it better uh, I would say Dune because uh, it's one of those where like the three here that I saw Dune, Nightmare Alley, Power of the Dog. I'm like, well, they all had great cinematography. Yeah, they did. Um, I picked Dune mainly because I felt like what I wanted out of that movie was to feel the sense of scale of being in another universe, almost. Because yeah. it is. I mean, it is almost like another universe. It's mm-hmm. so far in the future. Uh, and I, Denis Villeneuve is just so good collaborating with his cinematographers, no matter who they are. That I just feel like it made me feel as if I was in that world through the visuals, like it felt. But I, I agree with you. Like Power of the Dog, I, I would say probably tells its story with the camera better mm-hmm. by being intentional about the shots. Dune is more of like the spectacle of it is where the cinematography yeah. kicks in. But yeah, it's like one of those where like if either one of those movies wins, I'm not mad. Even yeah. Nightmare Alley winning, I wouldn't. Be yeah, and it was beautifully edited. Yeah. Like that's one thing that I feel like a lot of people would remark on so we're going to talk about best director next and so the films that are nominated in that category are belfast would it be kenneth branagh uh, drive my car and i'm not even going to try to pronounce that that a japanese director's name uh licorice pizza paul thomas anderson power of the dog jane campion and then west side story steven spielberg and the winner for best director is drive my car licorice pizza I mean, you are a huge simp for P.T. Like. <laughs> Anderson. I'm not going to say. And I thought, like, that's why I didn't pick it for screenplay. Like I said, the story in uh, Licorice Pizza was not what drew me in. It was the feeling and atmosphere of that place and that time. And I chalked that up to the directing. So it was Paul Thomas Anderson's choices as a director are what I liked about that movie not necessarily his ability as a writer. And if it that makes was very sense. nostalgic. Oh yeah, way. and like you, even though I've never been to California, certainly not in the 1970s in the San Fernando Valley, I still <laughs> felt like, oh, I know this place from watching this yeah. movie. Like I can feel what this place would have been like, and like being a teenager at that time in that place. Uh, and so, why did you pick Drive My Car for directing? Um, I think that they did very well with the directing on. 
there are some scenes that maybe for some people would would have been too long, but you feel as if that is part of the experience in the movie. This is a slow movie. It kind of like warms itself into you. And um, I just thought it, to me, like I had a better connection with that film. Mm-hmm. But again, we've are, we've also been discovering on how like, since our backgrounds are different, I don't have like that nostalgic feeling for what uh, licorice like, pizza or like Americana stuff. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. And drive my car was just like also felt like a. It felt almost like it was tu- uh, like it, w- it was touching the '90s without forcing you right into it. Like the car was an old school car. Mm-hmm. Like the long driving, uh, the listening to the cassettes. Like, there's these touches that feel nostalgic but aren't really so heavy. And, um, versus, like, Licorice Pizza, like, it is heavily nostalgic. And, I mean, they're both good, so I'm not gonna... Like, yeah, once again, I don't think we're... If someone's tuned in to hear us fight about this, I don't think... The small yeah. pool of movies that we actually like that the Oscars nominated, we're not going to be yeah, upset. Yeah, we if didn't even watch all of the ones that were nominated. Oh, yeah. I'm, and I never will. Like, it's just not <laughs> going to happen. We don't have that much time. So we're going to look at a Best Actress uh, in a Supporting Role. The nominees here are Jessie Buckley from The Lost Daughter, mm-hmm. Ariana DeBose, I think that's the right pronunciation, from West Side Story, Judy Dench in Belfast, Kirsten Dunst in Power of the Dog, and... Anjoana Ellis from King Richard. I'm sure I pronounced that incorrectly. Yeah. Uh, this was a hard category for me to pick because I didn't like most of these <laughs> and I didn't see them. Uh, so what did you pick? I ended up picking Kirsten Dunst because it was like the only one I couldn't like. Yeah, that was, out of those movies, and I would never have picked Jesse Buckley for The Lost Daughter. She's the worst part of that whole movie, and I think she's good. She's the flashback version. Yeah, and it was I feel really like bad. that's. I don't know if that was Maggie Gyllenhaal's directing, I, but I was shocked that she was nominated because I, I walked away from that movie hating that role. It was really weird because it's one of those instances where. I don't understand other critics that are like, I like this movie. Or, you know, it was a great performance. Well, and I'm just kind of like... It reminds me of uh, Petite Maman, which was from the director of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Oh my god. It's gotten rave reviews, and we watched it, and we both, like, when it was over, like, that was terrible. Well, I think it's also, like, this weird thing of having a small child small child act like an adult and both of them they're twins well let's, uh, we're getting off track on that well, let me let me let me no, 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 it was let's, just not good it go, just wasn't good but it was like the lost daughter it was there was potential there for a good story but it just yeah and that was just where she was nominated but yeah kirsten dunce was almost kind of default because other than jesse buckley i haven't seen any of those other movies and i do think kirsten dunce it's one of her like more mature complex roles that but she's kind of gotten into this thing of playing uh, women having like a mental breakdown in their 30s if you look at a melancholia the Lars von Trier movie well, I where think, it's, a, it's this sort of she does a very good job of playing despondent women I think what's really sad is like they never had a moment so she's playing against her husband her real life husband in this film who's playing her husband in the movie who is playing her husband in the film but we don't have any moments where it's like really sweet between them where you understand why they got married you just feel like she's just getting married because it's like the next thing to do with her life because you know she wants a better life for her son and even then there isn't like a lot of affection that she's showing to her son um Except maybe at the beginning of the film, and even then, it's sort of like touch and go. Which I think, if we look at this category, the per- people I think might win. With the best actress in a supporting role, I either feel like they give it to a veteran or they give it to a newcomer. So I feel like yeah. either Judy Dench is going to win it for Belfast, or Ariana DeBose is going to win it for West Side Story. Because she's new, and you get to have that like young actress I think she's stunned on stage. And also yeah, 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 like yeah. LGBT. Yeah. Uh, so and it could be like a moment. It's like an Oscar moment. Uh, now for actor in a supporting role. Uh, the nominees are, and I'm never sure how to pronounce this, Siren Hines from Belfast, mm-hmm. Troy Coetzer from Coda, Jesse Plemons from The Power of the Dog, J.K. Simmons from Being the Ricardos, Cody Smith-McPhee, The Power of the Dog. The only movie that has been nominated here that we've seen is The Power of the Dog. <laughs> so it's going to be a toss-up. Uh, the winner is who, Ariana? Cody Smith-McPhee. 
And that's who I picked too, Cody Smith McPhee, because Jesse Plemons doesn't really do much in that movie. No, I don't. Know. <laughs> I don't even know why he's nominated. Like I don't know, like why this. Everybody keeps hamming it up for this fucking director. I get it. The movie was beautiful. There was really cool stuff about it. But the married couple have... That's the weakest part of the movie. It is weird to see that they have no chemistry. And they're married in real life. And the weird thing (laughs) is they did the show Fargo together. And in it, we only saw like part of it. They had amazing chemistry there. And... So, what? Let's talk talk about the person we picked. Cody Smith McPhee. I think... I'm not going to spoil the movie... But I think it's because of what that character ends up revealing himself as. That's why that role is so well done by him. Because not for a second did I think that's where the character was going to end up while I was watching the movie. Um, so what, who's that actor that's from The Killing of a Sacred Deer? Um, the one that like is like, I'm going to... Barry Keoghan? He kind of, like, those two kind of have, like, similar vibes to each other. Like, kind of weird young dudes. Yeah, like, weird young they dudes. They can play an incel really like easy the, in a yes, movie. Yes, <laughs> but it's also, like, this really weird thing that that dude has become, like, people think he's hot now. It's, like, ugly hot. Yes. That's the new thing. Um, and, uh, but it, they, they have, like, that similar, like, this kid could be could play, like, the creepiest kid. Well, here, here's my pitch for a movie. I'm going to go see it. It's going to be a prestige movie. We're going to get, um... The cinematographer from Nightcrawler. Because <laughs> uh, it's going to be that kind of like seedy look to it. And it's just called Incels. <laughs> and it's Cody Smith McPhee and Barry Keoghan as like these two incels that meet up. And maybe like they, I don't know what happens. They kill people or they talk about it or something. And it's just this sort of like, you know, social issue picture kind of thing. Like I would eat that shit up. <laughs> I would love that. You know, like, at some point they're going to make a movie like this, but it'll be like uh, BET with the movie Karen. Oh, Karen it'll be like straight to mess. on demand. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's interesting. The actor roles I didn't feel much excitement about. I looked oh, at them. Uh, actress in a leading role. The nominees are Jessica Chastain in The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Olivia Coleman in The Lost Daughter, Penelope Cruz, Parallel Mothers, Nicole Kidman being the Ricardos, and Kristen Stewart in Spencer. Now, I think the favorite is Kristen Stewart in Spencer. I think everybody thinks she's going to win. But the yeah. winner for you is... It's going to be Jessica Chastain in I, Eyes of I knew you would have picked that. Yeah. That's not mine. What? Uh, Penelope Cruz? Penelope Cruz. Yeah, like, I, just, I feel like I skimmed over. I didn't see her name. Because uh, like, I'm like, she performs her role in Parallel Mothers so effortlessly like she has just reached like people are like meryl streep or these like you know god tier actors like penelope cruz is there she she knows the part she nails it she's so good well i think it's also it shows that she's so comfortable with this director yes comfortable with the material that you know i feel as if um another director or another actor would have made a big deal about her having a same sex scene with someone else. Yeah. Um, I I did. I mean, then again, I feel like I'm so disconnected from everyone else. I've not seen her like make a big deal out of it. Um, Jessica Chastain, though, like I already told you, I'm not a huge fan of the film. She gave a hundred and ten percent. Like when she was, she's in, very good. Yeah. yeah, it was it was like a passion project. For yes, her. and so and like if she won, I wouldn't be upset. But yeah. I still think like of those actresses. And those movies in particular, because all of those actresses I don't think are bad. I just think a lot of them, like, I haven't seen Me and the Ricardos, and I never will because it was written, and I don't know, directed by Aaron Sorkin. Probably. But Aaron Sorkin's name is on a project, I'm out. Like, uh, The Social Network's about the only Aaron Sorkin thing I enjoy, well, because, and that's because like, David Fincher made it work. Well, the, David Fincher is known to, like, go in and screenplay and be like, yeah. taking this, <laughs> removing that. <laughs> Uh, but like, I know everybody's making such a big deal about Kristen Stewart and Spencer. It was fine. Like, I would might consider it for a best directing award because like it was directed really interestingly. I don't understand. But I don't understand who why super it's so great. Passionate about her in that film. Please explain it to me because I feel like she was just doing this breathless. Thing. I'm. I'm. I get it. You're supposed to fictionalize. Um, like Real people. Print, like fictionalized this character, but it was just like I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it felt like, like caricature. Yeah, it felt like yeah, it was a weird. bad impression done on an SNL uh, 
a like skit, but it ran for way too long. And yeah. it's not as if it was a bad film. It also confuses me because it's like Spencer is not nominated for anything yeah, else. Yeah, that's that the I only category see. it's nominated for. It's sort of like they went, you know, did they do a poll on Twitter and then just went I don't with know. It? I don't know. <laughs> or they go like, oh, I know who her name is. People talk about her. <laughs> And our last category to talk about is Best Picture. i got to take a breath because this says 10 movies in Wait, it. Wait, did we do Leading Actor? Oh, no, no, no. You're right. You're right. You're right. Thank you for correcting me. Uh, best Actor in a Leading Role. Anybody who knows how to edit things, please I clip can, that. I can you. edit it. <laughs> I uh, want it clipped. I'll edit it out of the final recording so no one will hear it. Uh, Javier Bardem being the Ricardos. You already know I'm not going to pick him because it's Sarah Sorkin. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, The Power of the Dog. Andrew Garfield in Tick, Tick, Boom. No, you're not saying it right. Tick, Tick, Boom. <laughs> uh, Will Smith, King Richard, and Denzel Washington, The Tragedy of Macbeth. The winner is... Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, because I didn't watch any of those other fucking movies. Yeah, and so Benedict Cumberbatch would be my pick as well. Which I was, I was kind of. He's good in it though, and I usually don't like him. So he's he's good. I think we. This was like what? This has been over ten years ago. He was in goddamn uh, Sherlock. Sherlock. And at first we're like, oh, he's okay, and then after a while we're just like, we're so done. Well, I think it was seeing him in Star Trek Into Darkness as Khan. That was the turn for me, where I was like. Oh, I fucking hate this guy. Because <laughs> he was like, because he was like, "What's your name?" And then there's that like Dutch angle slow close up when he goes, "God," and it's like, I mean, that why is would he say the, that? The direct, the director's Because then, because then the question is, why would he say that to a group of people who don't know who he is? They're all just gonna be like, oh, "Okay, it's weird that you said it so dramatically." Well, this is all. It's all for the fucking like, oh, yeah. audience to be like. <gasps> But I would say Power of the Dog is probably the best role I've ever seen him in when I yeah, think about he, it. Yeah, like, because he doesn't have to play charming or smart or, he's or not, whatever. It wasn't a movie I would consider Oscar bait. Like, it was yeah. a movie that when I watched it, I never once thought, oh, they're trying to win awards with this. As opposed to something like The Imitation Game, where it's, you know, a biopic. And you're like, about, you know, an important person who was also okay. marginalized. And you're like, yep, that's Oscar bait kind All of right, thing. All right, so let's, let's, uh, I want to take a moment and ask, since we didn't watch this, uh, like any of these films, um, who would you be okay winning if it isn't Benedict Cumberbatch? Uh, Andrew Garfield. Him and Denzel Washington. I'd be okay. I feel like Denzel Washington's won a lot of Oscars. See, but I always like when I he like wins because then he tells people he doesn't like white people. It's just like, <laughs> it's his moment to say something weird after an interview. Uh, okay. Uh, are you thinking of Spike Lee? I don't know. <laughs> you both could be In his together. Waluigi outfit. I think that was like a couple years ago. Yeah, he wore the purple suit. I think suit. he kept wearing purple every no, time. No, no, it was it. only, we just watched that a lot. There was twice. No, we just watched that a lot. <laughs> There's a your movie sucks. There's an alternate universe where he wears purple no, to every Oscar. It's there's uh, your movie sucks. If you're not familiar with it, it's a great YouTube channel, and you should all follow it. Uh, every year they live stream the Oscars. You've got to find your own stream of the Oscars, but you can listen to them comment after the fact. They cut up and do like a sort of edited clip thing of the best bits. And I think it was maybe 2019 when Parasite won. Yeah, it was. Uh, Spike Lee was wearing this full purple outfit with a little purple cap. And it was a tribute to Prince. It was a tribute to Prince. But they were like, what a weed! like, it's, he had those huge glasses. It works, it works. Uh, so now we get to Best Picture, the final category. I'm sure this has been very exciting as we're not passionate about any movies. <laughs> we're like, I don't know, all the movies I love didn't get nominated, so fuck the Oscars. Uh, Best Picture nominees are Belfast, Coda, don't Look Up. How the fuck did Don't Look Up get nominated? I don't know. <laughs> Drive My Car, Dune, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, West Side Story. Now, I guess we know what you're not going to pick is Don't Look Up. <laughs> uh, so the winner for you, Ariana, is... Drive My Car. Drive My Car as well. It was our favorite movie of like, 2020. We needed, I keep telling you, we need to count the three and just say it together. <laughs> uh, so... I mean, we've kind of talked about it a lot. If you listen to our best of the year show, which if you haven't, you should go back and listen to that. We get a whole 10 cents for every ad you hear. So, <laughs> And we can't cash out yet because we got to get to $10 before they let us cash out. And we're only at a buck seventy. Um, and so... 
<laughs> it's funny. Uh, this is the saddest podcast yeah. ever. But yeah, Drive My Car. It's a great movie. It's not a movie for everybody. It'll probably win um, Best Foreign Feature, I'm going to bet, because it's nominated for that. But I don't think it'll win Best Picture, even though I'd want it to win. Uh, Best Picture, I don't really... Power of the Dog, I think, might. Or West Side Story. I feel like those might be the two that... Uh, but I don't want Spielberg to win. I'm not saying I want him uh, no, to win. I'm, saying, I'm just saying that. Mm. I know. I know what you're. I, I am just expressing. Like, here's the thing. As a Puerto Rican, West Side Story needs to fucking die. I'm sorry. I don't care if they pulled the full cast of fucking Puerto Ricans. <laughs> like, I will go on a rant on how the U.S. has basically fucked Puerto Rico over. But then for him to go in and make the fucking film when Puerto Ricans were like, don't make this fucking film. And he, like, I'm glad that they cast a Latina for Maria. He couldn't get a fucking Puerto Rican either. It was just like, and then what's that name of like that dude that a- Ansel Elgort, which Can is he the just weirdest. Go away! <laughs> it just in the in the trailers, he's just lurking around this tall dude <laughs> staring at this girl. It's the Me Too version of West Side Story, where he like sexually assaults her. Like I don't. Um, maybe if I watch it, I'll be like, it was a great movie?" But Spielberg no, just like, no, like no. just make no. room for other people, bro. I just I feel like Spielberg <laughs> is. He's a great nostalgia director for people that were kids in the 80s who go back and watch those movies. But and he references a, himself. Well, <laughs> Ready Player One was really where I just felt like Steven needed to retire. It was done. <laughs> like, we're done. We're done now, Steven. You're we're done. done. Uh, so, yes, those were our half-assed picks for the Oscars. <laughs> Something we won't even watch uh, no, when they air because we'll, we'll I, I really don't care. Um, but, yes... If you'd like to share your picks, that's okay. We probably won't read them or share them or anything. <laughs> but, uh, and that was our obligatory Oscar segment. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Pop Cult Podcast. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to reviews on popcult.blog and any additional links of something we might have mentioned in the episode. Make sure you subscribe wherever it is you listen to podcasts so that you'll be notified when new episodes are up. And in the meantime, visit popcult.blog for more reviews. Uh, There you'll also find information on how to support us on Patreon, where we have lots of rewards and goals, including the uh, $10 or higher reward of getting to pick a film every month for me to watch and review, do a write-up for, and maybe possibly even join the podcast as a guest to talk about it. I want to thank our current patron, Matt, for uh, his over one full year of patronage to the blog. We appreciate it. Until next time, keep watching.